Paul Tripp, some of you uh, may know of his, his writings and his teaching. He, he tells the following story. He says, I, I have a son who just doesn't understand gifts. He says, my wife and I would go out when he was just this little fella, and we, we thought we bought the perfect gift. gift. He would tear it open, and he'd end up playing in the box. It just drove us crazy. So we decided one Christmas that we were going to find the gift of all gifts, He would not be able to resist this. So we shopped, we shopped, we found the right gift. We were so excited. When the gift came out from under the tree, he ripped it open like any little boy would. And actually, he got out the toy and he began to play with it. I had this great feeling of victory. So I went into the kitchen to get something to drink. When I came back a few minutes later, there he was, sitting in the box. He says, I couldn't believe it. Tripp goes on to say, you know, If you're one of God's children, you've been given the most awesome gift that you could ever be given. It's gorgeous from every perspective. It's a gift that in all of your work, in all of your efforts, all of your achievements, you couldn't have ever earned it. You could have never deserved it. You could have never achieved it. It is absolutely without question the gift of gifts. It's the gift of the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he ends with this line. But I am convinced that there are many Christians who are content to play in the box. I think he's right. It's the idea that that we have been driving at, as we've looked at Romans 8, to, to tie into that question that we've been asking since Resurrection Sunday, so what? And Easter Sunday, we celebrated, and it was a party, and there was all kinds of hype. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And then came Monday. And so after celebrating Christ is risen, the perfect gift... I think that probably many of us, maybe even unknowingly, crawled into the box, preferring the box to the gift, the wondrous gift, Christ is risen, so what? What is different? Has anything changed? And in order to try to to get at a good answer, we've gone to Romans 8, the Apostle Paul as you know, he's on a mission. He's, he's out to convince the believers in Rome and the believers at Applewood Community Church that the grace of God made available to us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. That is what Paul is driving at in Romans 8. It changes everything. And, and we've learned three significant blessings so far. Blessing number one, To be a recipient of God's grace in Christ is to no longer be an object of God's wrath. Because of God's grace through His Son, by faith in Jesus, we no longer live under the deserved condemnation for rejecting God as God and as our Creator and for rejecting the created purpose that He has given to each human being to live with him and to live for him. So, what difference then does Christ is risen make? Well, let's see. Those of us who put our faith in Jesus are forgiven our natural 
sinful rebellion against our creator and the judgment that comes with that. Eh, no big deal, right? Okay, blessing number two. In addition, we've been given the ability to think properly about God. To think properly about God. To actually understand that that there is a God and to think properly about who God is and his rightful role in our lives as the one who gives us life. We now have the ability, Paul has taught us in Romans 8, to think clearly about ourselves and God, recognizing, perhaps most importantly, that he is indeed God and we are not. So, ask the question again, what difference does Christ is risen make? Well, let's see, for the first time since the day we were born, we have the ability to live a life that actually brings life versus death because we have been given this gift of understanding that we were created for God and for Him and not Him for us. No big deal, right? Okay. Christ is risen means that those who put their faith in him are raised from spiritual death to life. And so then blessing number three is to those who put their faith in Jesus, we have learned that God gives his spirit as counselor, as teacher. Can I say it this way? As power source. Paul told the Corinthian believers that their bodies are the temple of God's spirit. So What difference then does Christ is risen make? Well, let's see. Not only do we have the ability to live in a life-giving way for the first time ever, but, but we have the very presence of God within us to help make that happen, guiding and teaching and empowering us to do that. Again, no big deal, right? We know this. Okay, this morning. We continue in our reading of Romans 8. We come to what I think, I think this might be the most outrageous teaching in all of Scripture. Again, it's, it's familiar to us. Sometimes you know how I, I fear the familiar. It is so familiar that we are just numb to it. But this is, this is outrageous stuff. Suggested a couple of weeks ago that if, if we were to consider the, the book of Romans sort of liken it to a, a beautiful ring. Chapter 8 is, is the diamond in that ring. And I think the verses that we read this morning, well, they may well be that glow in the diamond that just makes it absolutely brilliant, beautiful beyond description. So let's stand together and let's read the, uh, the next portion of this amazing text, Romans chapter 8. Here we go together. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive 
brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Hey, I would like for you just to take a minute or two, turn to someone nearby, and uh, talk with them about that word that Paul used, obligation. He said, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. And so just talk with a neighbor, what's that word obligation mean? And what is Paul getting at when he says, it's not an obligation to live according to the sinful nature? What do you think? What's he saying? Okay, we're ready? What do you think? To talk about an obligation, what's an obligation? Anybody? It's a requirement, okay? Something you have to do, okay? John? We are not obliga- obligated to be tempted? Okay. Okay, okay. Or to withstand the temptation, for sure. Yeah, what else? What else? Lee? Is? Exactly. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Important word. The, the, the word is really debt. So Paul is saying we are no longer debtors to the sinful nature. We are no longer, we, we no longer have an obligation. We are no longer in debt. So that means that at one point, what? We were, and that's, that's where we've come in Romans 8 so far. We've, we've learned what God has done in giving us his spirit, in, in now giving us minds that can think clearly and objectively about who God is and our relationship to him and our created purpose. You know, and and to, for the first time, as we've said, to think in, in life-giving ways. And we are no longer obligated. We are no longer debtors, something that we have to, to do or pay. Simply put, Paul is saying this. We do not have to sin. We don't. Does that sound outrageous to you? 
It does to me. We don't have to sin. That is clearly what Paul is saying. Now, the Spirit of God is living in us. And Paul says, because the Spirit is there, we do not have to sin. We think in terms, okay, I think in terms, if the shoe fits, put it on. Well, I'm not perfect, you know, I will sin. You've probably never thought that, have you? You know, I don't want to, but I still do. Sometimes, sometimes I've heard words that are almost a justification, not from any of you, of course, something like, well, God understands. Or we might even say, you know, that's just the way I am. Paul does not agree. Paul is saying, you now have the presence of God living in you. What is your excuse? That's the language. We're no longer obligated. We no longer have to sin. Now, it's important that we keep in mind the big picture that Paul has painted because as we've said, we sometimes zero in and we think in terms of sin as, as the little things, you know? And, well, I should say lesser things. Let me come back to that. Remember, Paul is driving at the idea of the sin nature. The sin nature is what we are born into. The sin nature is what in Romans chapter 1 causes the condemnation, or Paul uses the word wrath in Romans 1, to fall down on humanity. Why? Because God the Creator has been rejected by those He has created. God has made humanity for Himself. Humanity has chosen to reject God And so, so Paul is interested in that big picture of when God makes us his own through Christ, when God's grace touches our lives and changes us, it doesn't necessarily sweep clean all of the bad sinful behaviors that we have, but it gives us the ability to recognize them for what they are, which is a rejection of who God is and the life that he's called us to. And now, for the first time, we have a choice to actually walk in the path that God has created for humanity to walk in, and that is to live in relationship with him. Make sense? That's what Paul's driving at. The, the misdeeds that he refers to, saying that the Spirit of God living in those who are God's people can put to death the misdeeds of the body. Yeah, the misdeeds are, are, the, are the sins that we commit. Paul is saying those can be put to death. Those can be vanquished because the sin nature has been put under control in your life. It hasn't been killed, unfortunately. How many times have I wished? Wish this sin nature was just dead. <laughs> no, I'd like to blame him. <laughs> okay, clear so far? All right, so let's move then to, to some other things that, that Paul is saying here. Did you notice 
Did you notice in our reading what Paul did not say? This is, I think this is very fascinating. It's kind of telling. After, after saying to the readers that we have an obligation and what it's not to, we're not obligated to the sinful nature. We are free from the control of the sinful nature. He never gets around to telling us what we have an obligation to. Doesn't say it. It was just very unlike Paul. Paul... Paul's writing style, you know, you've read enough of Paul, you know he's, he's typically a leave no stone unturned kind of a writer, you know. Paul is usually very precise. And he is very thorough uh, to, to make sure that we understand clearly what it is that he's saying. And I, I have a theory here on, on what's going on. I couldn't find anybody in the, in the theological world to support me, but that's okay. They're, they're wrong and I'm right. <laughs> I think it's this. I think it's this. He is simply awestruck with the truth of what he is about to write. Listen again. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. You were slaves. That's the implication. You were enslaved to the sin nature. And you were always living with this sense of fear, this sense of, I don't measure up or I'm not good enough. Or what if, what if, what if? Paul's saying, that's not who you are anymore. You've been set free from that because you're right. You weren't good enough. You couldn't measure up. You couldn't do enough. That's not the point. God took care of all of that. And so now you have received a spirit of, he calls it, sonship through adoption. We're going to come back to that. And by the spirit of God, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, for Paul, I think it's, it's, it's safe to say, it's reasonable to say that this truth falls into the category of stunning. Stunning truth. For a Jew who took seriously the holy, terrifying presence of Yahweh revealed in the history of his people, to be a child of God creates the possibility for an intimacy that is simply outrageous. It really is. That's the point. He even uses that Aramaic term, Abba. More of a, more of a Papa. More of a Daddy. Can, can you... Papa. Yeah. Can, can you hear the wonder in Paul's voice? Yahweh. Daddy? He is just awestruck as he tries to, to put this together, as he tries to understand how can this be? And so as we've said, the word translated obligation is debt. And so though he never says it, it's clear that the debt that is owed is to God for a love so amazing that he not only rescues and forgives rebellious people, he then adopts them into his family. 
Now, if that doesn't make your pulse race, I'm concerned about you. This is incredible. I think it may be the most incredible truth in all of Scripture. It is one thing for God to come and to choose to forgive us and choose to to set us free from the sin nature. Wow. To, To give us his spirit to guide us and to lead us in the life that we were created to live for his glory. But to make us his kids? Does that not strike you as stunning? It strikes Paul as stunning. I think he just gets caught up in the amazement at all, and of it all, never comes back and says, and oh, the debt that we do have is to live our lives in praise and thanksgiving to a God who is outrageous enough to do something that is absolutely ludicrous. That's the debt. That's the debt. Christ is risen. So what? (laughs) This, of all of our answers, is one of the most outrageous so far. It is just simply incredible. You can read widely. Some of you have, I know, through through the history of the world's religions. You will not find this anywhere. A God that sacrifices his own son to save rebellious people. That's absurd. And then he makes them his children. That's beyond absurd. What kind of a God is this? Good question. Yeah. No idea. No idea. Well, certainly to gain a father of this nature stood against the role of father, the role of patriarch in Paul's culture. We'll come to that in just a moment, John. Um, but yeah, in terms of Paul and his relationship to his father, but, you know, Scripture just doesn't, doesn't tell us and there's, there's really no extra biblical information to give us much insight there. But I love what J.I. Packer says about this. You know, some of you have read his classic, Knowing God. <clears throat> it's been around for years. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, Find how much, he, how much he makes of the thoughts of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. This is, this is so significant, my friends. It, it, Packer's absolutely correct if... Is there, is there anything that describes the love of God more intimately than that of, of a father? Paul is so smitten, and he's so in awe of this truth that, that, as I said, he simply forgets to tell us who it is we are obligated to, who we are debtors to, but it is obvious from the context. In our experience, debt is a bad word because we're a nation that is swimming in debt, we recoil against the idea of being in debt. For, for many, debt is a sin. We need to avoid it at all costs. But, but Paul says this debt is no sin. 
Indebtedness to God, in fact, is it is a joy-filled obligation. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you see yourself? Do you understand yourself as a child of God? Do you understand yourself indebted to God? Indebted to God. Paul says we are. Paul says that we owe something to God that needs to be paid. And I would suggest to you that it is a lifetime of praise and adoration and thanksgiving for what God has done. You remember when we were kids? You know, kids, we'd get into a tiff with a friend, you know, and then the verbal sparring begins. You know, I don't know as a kid until first grade when I got sent home for punching some kid. Uh, you know, I... <laughs> I, you know, I, I got in lots of fights with my friends, but we never laid a hand on each other. It was just this verbal sparring match, you know, and the trump card was, my dad is bigger than your dad. My dad is stronger than your dad. Well, what Paul is saying here, this is the dad. When Paul speaks about an obligation, the, the, the debt that we have to the father He's really getting at the heart's response to what God has done for us. You know, we, we can, be, we can pretty, be pretty small-minded, I think. Sometimes in the, way that, in the same way that we can, we can minimize the sin problem and just make it these particular activities of our lives, well, we can, we can become pretty small-minded, I think, as well about the response or the debt that we have to God as Father. You know, I need to do more of this. I need to do more of that. We've got all these lists of to-dos, and we don't do them well, and that just produces guilt. Take your list, crumple it up, and throw it away. Write across your heart, for the rest of my life, my obligation to God is to live a life that just shouts praise and adoration and thanksgiving to him for what he has done. That's what Paul's talking about. It is the debt that is owed by the grateful heart that understands what God has done for me in Christ is absolutely outrageous. Outrageous. And what were my chances outside of that? Well, you... You go there, okay? So we must remember, when we talk about debt, God needs nothing from us. You know, be careful of tracking in that path. God needs nothing from us. We do him no favors by our service. We do him no favors by our good deeds. Nothing. He doesn't need anything from us. But I believe, I believe that he wants, that he desires, and rightfully deserves from us praise and thanks and the exaltation of him to his rightful place, which is the center of our lives and the throne of our hearts. Anything less doesn't cut it because he's God and that's what he deserves. You know, he deserves the whole enchilada, and we're happy to throw him a bean here and there. It just doesn't work. 
That's not who we're dealing with. And I hope you understand that that's, that's Paul's language in, in this entire chapter so far. He deserves the praise and the thanks of all humanity, but he doesn't get that. What he gets is rejection. We saw that in Romans 1. But think back to where we started in this chapter. Those who are in Christ are no longer under that condemnation of rejecting God. We've been set free to live lives of praise and thanksgiving to God, no longer obligated to sinful nature. Okay, so we arrive at what Paul is saying this morning And the implication is, is how much more so should those who are God's children be living lives of joy-filled praise and thanks? We ought to be joy-filled debtors every day, paying our debt with glad joy to God who has done this for us. And so as, as we close this morning, I want to send you with a couple of truths that I think can really amp up the joy that we feel about God as our Father. At least that's, that's my hope. That's my prayer. Both of these statements are, are statements about God's character. They are both in the text. One jumps out at us, and I think the other one is, is less obvious, and, and we'll talk about that for just a moment. But for the first one, I want you to think about the word adoption. He has adopted us as his children. Those who are in Christ Jesus are adopted by God. This, I think, is more precious than we realize. I think one of the worst things that a child could ever experience in his or her life from their their biological parents, is a feeling of being unwanted. Some of you know that pain. Some of you have lived with and still live with that pain of not being wanted by your earthly parents. And so you know that pain. And I think quite honestly, for many people, it obscures your ability to rejoice in God as father because you don't have good associations with that word. God adopted us. Here's the truth. God has no unwanted children. You see, adopted children are wanted. No parent of an adopted child is surprised by the presence of a kid in his house. Oh my, where did you come from? A parent who has pursued adopting a child knows precisely where that child has come from. They were, they, they, they know very well and they were planned for and they were pursued and they were purchased. God has no biological children. Every one of his kids is adopted. And every one of his kids is precious and wanted. You know what else? It it occurred to me, when when parents adopt a child, they 
they'll, they'll do their best to find out as much about the child as they can ahead of time just to be able to better understand their little one as he or she grows in their home. It, it helps sometimes to, to eliminate surprises, can help them understand perhaps better what their little one has gone through. All the kids that God adopts, he knows everything about them. He knows it all. And, and he adopts them into his family. Everything that comes with the child, all the past, all the hurt, all the pain, all the rejection, if they're, if they're old enough to, to remember that and to understand that and experience that, God knows it all. And he wants them. He adopts them. So let me ask you, do you ever spend time thinking about the fact that God wanted you, that you as a child of God were wanted by the creator of the universe. Awesome, awesome thing. Second truth, this one is is buried in the text. Paul says, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. One of the reasons that I love the today's New International Version, which is the version that we read together most often on Sunday mornings, is because it strives to be gender inclusive. It, it, it chooses to, to make those decisions at the point where the word allows you know, uh, uh, men and women that, that they, they're included, that they're included. Much of the, the older language of Scripture is, is very male-oriented. It's very male-dominated. And so, so I appreciate the attempts where it is, it is legit and it's good hermeneutics to do that. And, uh, and yet, I, I'm struck with the fact that Paul, and, and Paul uses gender-neutral words often, but in this text, he did not use the more gender-neutral word, children. He used very specifically the male pronoun, son. I think Paul is making a revolutionary claim when he does that. I think he is being very intentional. He's living in a traditional patriarchal culture. Roman society viewed women and daughters as second-class citizens. Some of you women that are in this room have experienced that. You have been treated as a second-class citizen. It goes on all over the world. It goes on, a lot of it, in our advanced and sophisticated country. Women are treated like property. They are treated by, as, as lessers. And in the Roman culture, women were property. A woman could be disposed of, a female child could be killed, put out on the streets, abandoned, but never a male. Oh no. Males were the chosen ones. Why? Because they were males. 
Paul, when he says in his own traditional culture, writing to a church in Rome that is full of men and women and children, many of whom are little girls, Paul says very specifically that we are all sons in Christ. Do you hear what he's saying? He is saying to the women and to the children in a culture where they are crap, no, you are first-class citizens. You are children of the living God. You hold a place of prominence and esteem just as the sons do in this world in which we live. This is awesome. This is amazing. Paul is, is turning the tables, and he does it subtly. The family of God, Paul is saying, is not a place where women are ever unwanted. And shame on the church for ever making it that way. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. We are all. See, you and I, we read the word children, and for the most part, we understand that. But in cultures around the world, to read children, the little girls in the crowd would understand, well, that means I'm a second-class citizen in the family of God. How tragic. How tragic that that would ever be thought. No second-class citizen is in God's family. None of us earned it. None of us deserved it. And we all get to sit at the banquet table side by side because of who we are? No. Because of who God is. Because of who God is. So, praise team, our young and wonderful praise team, come on up. Get ready to lead us as we respond this morning. Let me close with just a, a brief story from Brendan Manning. He tells the story of a man named Edward Farrell. Edward took his two vacation to Ireland to celebrate his favorite uncle's 80th birthday. On the morning of that great day, Ed and his uncle got up before dawn. They dressed in silence and they went for a walk along the shores of Lake Killarney. And they were there for quite a while in silence, just observing the beauty. Just as the sun rose, his uncle turned looked out across the lake at the rising sun. Not a single word was exchanged as they stood there for several minutes. And then suddenly, the 80-year-old uncle began to skip along the shoreline. A radiant smile just all over his face. And after catching up with him, Ed commented, he said, he said, Uncle Seamus, you are, you are very happy this morning. Do you mind telling me why? Oh, yes, laddie, he said, tears washing down his face. He said, you see, the father is fond of me. Ah, he says, my father is so very fond of me. Amen.